This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Hey guys, this is Nick Nanavati from the Art of War podcast, and we're joined today by Jim Vessel, a man who needs no introduction, and of course, John Damaris, our other Art of War podcast host. Hey guys, hey Jim, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, how's it going, everyone? So, Jim, you're uh, number one in the ITC currently, is that correct? Uh, as of today, yes, but uh, I have many usurpers uh, nipping at my heels right now, including Nick. Yeah, I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been any time this season that you haven't been number one? Uh, I think super early on. Um, once I kind of got up there, I kind of stayed on stayed on top of it. So um, that's been close. TJ's been winning tournaments. Thankfully, he's like I think he's maxed out at kind of smaller size events. So unless he wins like a big event, uh, like Nova or something. Um, he's going to have limited points to gain on me. Right. I, I imagine Adepticon was a really big point getter for you. Yeah, Adepticon and BAO were both uh, the kind of my top two finishes. Um, so those were really good. Uh, it was kind of interesting to see how many points Adepticon gave. I, I assume it's because of the, the, the format where you play eight games. So the, the number of games you play seems to have a much bigger impact than it did in the past. Yeah, I imagine uh, with the race being so close as it is and the number of large events being pretty much down to like Nova and maybe one or two others, it's probably going to be a race between like the top 10 just to see who does who better in LVO. I mean, well, I think the interesting thing to remember too is like with the new formula, even the like with the new formula, even the big events are not scoring that much more than the lower events. So I think, uh, I think even with LVO, you know, if I can finish my goal at this year for LVO, obviously, is to like get into the top sixteen, essentially, to final the final eight. If I can do that, I think even if, say, you know, you win the LVO, Nick, yeah, uh, I think the point spread between first and say sixteenth will still be fairly, yeah, uh, might might be still small enough. Where it, you know, if I can if I can accrue a decent lead, um, it I might be able to hold on now. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm. We'll see where we're at after, like, basically going into January. I mean, it's we're going to have chapter approved. We're going to have the FAQ, probably a new Space Marine yeah. books. That's just about all whole, like, the, the the meta and the whole game is going to be all over the place. We'll probably get another campaign book at some point during the end of the year, like we did with the Vigilus. So I imagine the forty. Like, it's it's always funny because the LVO meta is almost like a different meta than the whole season that you just played because of because of those factors. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's it's almost like the start of a new season, but it's really the end of the old season. Right. Okay. Well, uh, Jim, the reason why we have you on is we want to talk about um, your list. So if you want to go through sort of line by line your current list and maybe give listeners you know, the reason why uh, those particular units are, are in your list, I think would be a good place to start. Sure. And just to be clear, like I've, I've been kind of back and forth on a few different lists. Uh, do you want me to kind of talk about like 
the main list I was playing for most season. And uh, lately, I've been making a few changes here just to kind of adjust. Or is that specifically which list I'm going to talk about? Let's talk about your main list to start. And then maybe as the conversation goes on, we can go over some changes you're considering and why you're considering them. Sure. Um, so the list I've basically ran, I, I'm not going to count ATC because it is a team event. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's like obviously a little bit different. But uh, the main list I've been running has been a chaos uh, mixed faction list. And that's the PC way of saying it these days, mixed faction, uh, not soup. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it is basically a demon detachment, uh, Nurgle de demon detachment consisting of 60 plague bearers. Um, obviously, plague bearers are if one of, if not the best kind of like base troop unit, um, as far as like points for efficiency and uh, staying power, they're, they're not the best troops when it comes to things like killing, but they definitely are hard to kill. Um, and a unit of Nurglings is my troop choices. Uh, I, I like Nurglings. They're a great little uh, objective camper and they're surprisingly hard to kill. Um, and then I also have a Sloppy Ball Piper and a Poxburger, which basically are just the two support characters uh, the Sloppy Ball Piper obviously letting me roll morale on two dice, and the Poxbringer uh, basically just standing in the back casting Yasna for six turns. Um, so that's the Demon Battalion. So, the, Jim, just quickly, yeah, go ahead. the, yeah. the Bile Popper allows you to roll two dice, and, and then you have, like, isn't there a banner or something that comes with the Plague Bears? So if you roll a one, you get, like, D6 back instead of losing them on the morale check? Is that... Yeah, so any Demon unit, uh, well, I don't say any, but most Demon units can take a Demonic Icon, and basically the way that works is if you roll a one for your morale test, instead of losing models, you gain D6 back. Up to, um, you can actually grow it past the starting strength, presuming you have reinforcement points. But as long as you don't take it past the starting strength, uh, it doesn't cost any reinforcement points for those. So it's essentially uh, free models. And it, it can be extremely powerful, um, especially mid to late game where um, like you might be losing one, instead of, yeah. There's a, there's a whole kind of different vibe to it late game because of the, the pace at which you lose models. Um, compared to the early game where you're losing things much faster, but um, it can be really annoying, mostly. Um, and it can definitely help you in a lot of ways. So um, it's definitely worth it for 60 points. As someone who's played against many sloppity Biopiper Plague Bearers, every time you see a one come up on the die, you lose a piece of it's, your soul. It's so... Like, like I've played the mirror <laughs> match, and I know... I, like, fully appreciate how frustrating it is because I've played the mirror match more yeah, so You understand now. Yeah. And it's just, like, this, like... <laughs> heart sinking frustration <laughs> so so annoying <laughs> the worst is when you kill like 12 13 plague bears get them right below 20 feeling good going in the next turn get right back up to past 20 the yeah one. or alternatively like you kill one like in combat and they get six back oh. so it's like your 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 like attacks actually ended up helping the opponent you know what i mean yeah that's also like devastating that's just psychological warfare actually <laughs> i mean yeah. you're just sending people straight to salt town right like i can imagine if you make three or four of those rolls oh, like yeah. people start to get pretty frustrated by it i know i would so yeah it's it's streaky like i've had games where like i literally never roll at all game and then i've had games where it's like every turn it's like i'm getting every turn like for both of our in both player turns i'm getting like two to three models back and it like you end up like i've had games where i've had the unit go be down to 16 and then finish the game at like 25 it's like <laughs> people just hate you now, i remember the first time you played you pat you rolled a one like three times i think you said 30 play beers in the last thankfully yeah, not 60 that's what I, I feel like i fought 60 <laughs> yeah that was uh in the early stages of my plague where kind of discovery what a revelation play bears are good um 
So the next kind of second battalion uh, battalion in my list is another Demon's Battalion. And that kind of consists of all my kind of fun stuff. So I have, for characters in there, I have uh, Corn Demon Prince with the Relic Skull Reaver Axe. And he is basically there to uh, deal with knights and other, um, and Bobby G's and other really kind of high toughness, high wound targets. Um, and he's, for 180 points, like you can't really get much more uh, for his killing power, you can't really get much more, uh, much better for him. And, and he's obviously got the character rule. Uh, the one downside with him is he's super squishy. Uh, so if he doesn't basically kill the thing he's killing, um, he's going to die. And, you know, generally you're not sending him into guard characters. But if you're sending him against something big to kind of take it out, if he doesn't kill it, it's generally lights out for him. Um, a knight will stomp him to death. And uh, things like, you know, hive tyrants and... Uh, you know, patriarchs and orc bosses. If you know, if you don't kill them, they're gonna they're gonna kill you back. So he's a bit of a he, he he can be hit or miss. And I've had times where he's bounced, and it's just like very very sad face. So um, the other two characters I usually run is a change caster, uh, which is there to buff the horrors uh, and also give me gaze of fate, which is an incredible power. Um, and they give plus one strength to horrors. They're also something that it can also be handy with is uh, it also gives plus one strength to your demon princes. So it's, it's kind of a lesser used uh, role for it. But if you're facing someone with knights or something that's got toughness seven, toughness eight, if you can run your change cast up close to your demon princes when they're in combat, it'll actually bump your demon princes up to strength eight as well, which is nice. So it's, it's a lesser kind of used uh, way to use them, but it's definitely can be helpful uh, in certain matchups. Um, and then lately I've been... Um, uh, in my kind of current version of that list, I've been uh, playing with the Contorted Epitome, which is the Slanesh Mirror. And that is got all sorts of crazy abilities, but the primary kind of reason you bring it is due to its ability to stop units from falling back than six inches. Um, if they don't roll under their morale, and that's a really important distinction, under their morale on 3d6. So that means on a leadership eight, you got to roll a seven or less. Um, and uh, it also actually has a few powers that supplement it. So it's got uh, uh, Phantasmagoria, which gives everything within 12 minus one leadership, which is really helpful um, if you're facing <clears throat> like more high, t- high leadership targets. And then uh, the second spell I'll take will usually depend on... Um, I'll always generally take Symphony of Pain, which gives uh, the closest unit minus one, which combined with your minus two for your Plague Bearers can give your, you know, a, a problem... Uh, like uh, say there's a unit that's got a lot of punch giving it making it minus three against your plague bearers is is pretty hilarious um and then also sometimes i'll take uh, symphony of pain which is if i'm playing hordes or sorry not symphony of pain uh pavane of slanesh which basically means uh, you roll a dice for every model unit and on a six it takes a mortal wound those are kind of the three powers i bounce between the other powers are mostly garbage um and i wouldn't recommend ever taking them um and then, and then the other great thing about it is that you can give it a Forbidden Gem, which is also game-winning, um, especially because I think, I think my opponents forget about it more less than I do. <laughs> it's one of those things where like, I always forget to use it. But um, uh, to give you an example of a game I played at uh, ATC, uh, I got charged first turn by Gallant, and in his tr- the start of the fight phase, when he went to go to do his tax, I Forbidden Gemmed it, so the Gallant just stood there, um, did literally zero wounds. Um, and then I fell back, popped my corn prince over, dead gallant. So it was, you know, can do what, stuff like... What is the... For- yeah. 
What does the Forbidden Gem do? I, I actually don't know. Oh, so it's also got it's also kind of got super annoying rules. So basically, you pick a character within twelve inches at the start of any phase, and so again, this combos with the minus one leadership. So you first cast your minus one leadership bubble, and then you kind of wait for people to walk into your your trap. Um, you roll three d six if you roll over their leadership. They cannot act at all for the entire phase. So if it's the movement phase, they can't move. It's the shooting phase, they can't shoot. It's the fight phase, they cannot fight. And they also it cancels all their aura abilities in that phase. So for instance, if I mean I'd probably never use it in this uh, scenario, but for instance, say you were close into a Gilliman gun line, and at the start of the shooting phase, you could pick Gilliman uh, to turn and jam him and basically negate his reroll aura. So nothing would be able to use his reroll aura. Or say against Gene Seer cults with their fearless uh, uh, patriarchs, you know, in the morale phase, you could use it on a patriarch. Their leadership ten, I think, base is that right, Nick? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so it's 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 less likely to go off, but you know, if your opponent is relying on a bunch of fearless units that you've done damage to, and all of a sudden you uh, turn off its fearless aura, that can be pretty big as well, because because those units will disappear really quickly. So it has a lot of different uses uh, when you remember to use it. Yeah, it's one of the best relics in the game, but it's just hard to actually get a good use off of it. Mm. But in the right situation, it can literally win you the game. Yeah, and so I usually take it as my second extra relic. Like, I'll always take the axe on the corn prince. And then the the forbidden gem, I'll just take depending on opponents. So, like, <clears throat> against Tau, it's not really worthwhile because um, if I'm that close with my mirror, uh, the game's probably already over uh, to any of the characters that matter. Um, against things like orcs, you know, generally you're not really getting to their characters until it's late game or they're far away, uh, unless it's a combat character. But again, I mean, if you think about what the meta orc lists are right now, they don't generally feature a ton of fighting characters. They might have a war boss here and there, but you know, they're generally going to lead from the back and only go into those combats where like you're already kind of winning. Um, so it can be helpful. And against Imperium, I mean, yeah, it can be really good against like a Trahan or Custodes characters, but like you're not going to waste it on a uh, a guard captain or a, a commissar or something like that. So it has, it's very situational. Um, it's really good against knights. That's kind of like one of the best uses. Um, yeah, that just seems like just a crazy toolbox. Just gives you options, right? And gives you opportunities to outplay your opponent. Because yeah. if you remember it and they forget about it, it can really swing the game. Like Those are big effects. Yeah, I, for, I forgot it three games at ATC out of six. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> But the games I did remember, <laughs> it was like really good. Wow. And well, actually, to be fair, one of the three games I just didn't even use it. Like, it just the no, no opportunity came up where I even needed it. Yeah. Um, so, um, and then my third third uh, kind of detachment is a Supreme Command of Thousand Sons, which is pretty standard in a lot of lists. Two Demon Princes, Armin, and then I'll usually put in a Sorcerer on foot or a Terminator Sorcerer, depending on kind of the points. And those are kind of responsible for the majority of the, uh, I want to say the majority of the damage dealing. Um, oh, sorry. I also forgot. I usually run uh, 15 blood letters. I, I, I didn't even go to the, the rest of my battalion. So in the demon battalion, there's um, 25 pink horrors, which act as a, kind of a screen clear. Um, and they'll, they have actually a lot of shooting. People are often surprised about how much uh, firepower they put out. And then I also run 15 blood letters. Uh, 15 is a weird number, and people are like, why do you have them? Um, well, they're cheap enough that it, like the unit's 130 points, so it's a bit of a throwaway. Um, but they're still threatening enough that people have to kind of plan for them. And uh, on the charge, you know, you're still getting 31 uh, AP3 attacks with a fight twice. That's 62. So they can still do a decent amount of damage against certain targets. Uh, they're not kind of a unit that you charge in and get stuck in with. They're really there to clear backfield, which for 130 points, 
they do a really good job of, um, or to tag tanks if I need to really touch a bunch of things, that 3d6 charge, being able to kind of like charge past units really far and tag things like tanks, uh, tag things like, uh, you know, Tau suits, tag things like uh, Cataphron robots, those kinds of things. That 3d, that extra distance on the charge can actually be, is, is actually very powerful, even if they didn't kill anything. Like just being able to kind of take a unit and move it 3d6 plus one from Deep Strike is a is very strong in, in a game like 40k where movement is such a big part of it. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the most underrated aspect to them is that just the 3d6 charge being able to automatically help you wrap stuff, especially with the epitome. I think that's uh, more important than their damage dealing. With the blood letters, you know, to kind of to your point about the movement, um, there's been times where I charge them down and Jay-Z chained them basically across the table and maybe only gotten one or two in combat um, and done like two or three attacks. Um, you know, maybe got even based one model with 15 blood letters and just wasted the rest just so I could, you know, get to an objective or tag something or wrap something. Um, and that probably happens more often than times where I actually like commit them into a combat. So I, I definitely agree yeah, with you. Yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, it's got to feel really good to touch like two tank commanders, right? And just be like, uh-huh. Yeah, or or uh, even like um, like you just you just wrap something um, that they can never kill, and they just stay there and make it not be able to run away. It can be because um, fifteen models with on thirty twos is actually quite a bit of board real estate, so um, it's not bad. Well, it's also it's not just that your bloodletters can't get shot. If you can get your plague bears also wrapped up in that combat somehow, yeah. even if you can't get a wrap off with the epitome. They can't fall back. Your bulleters can't get shot. Your play bears can't get shot. Characters are all standing behind it. All of a sudden, your entire army is mean to being shot. Right. Pretty strong. And I've I've literally like uh, like uh, Devin Swan. He's one of the kind of top top players in uh, in uh, in Canada. I think he's he's like maybe top 15, 20 in in IGC. Uh, a lot of games I've played with him, like turn three or turn two, I'll get a wrap like that off where like he literally can't leave combat with anything, and he'll just concede. He's like at this point game over like <laughs> like i can't shoot anything yeah and, like there's no way i can win this game at this point and it's just one of those like kind of game winning you can have game winning charges yeah absolutely i think that's one of the strongest things about your list actually is its ability to just keep stuff in close combat and use durability plus the character rule to basically make your entire army immune to damage yeah um and then just sorry going back to my last attachment is the supreme command with uh the two demon princes and armin and they basically do a lot of the uh, damage. I, I generally uh, tend towards damage spells. The snipes. I like to pick up characters as much as I can, uh, do as much damage. So I don't take things like uh, Weaver of Fates or Glamour of Zinch that often. Um, I generally will pick up all four of the, the targeted smites and then um, uh, even warp time. Like a lot of people ask me, they're like, oh, why don't you give Armin warp time? And I'm like, well, the way my list functions is like my. Most of my casters are going to stay with the Plague Bears, <clears throat> which means they have very few re times. Like, I only actually usually cast Warp Time, like, maybe once per game, like, on a turn where I need to get somewhere. It's not, it's not um, used in the way that you'd see it used in, say, like, a list with a lot of Alpha Strike, where you're trying to get things across the board quickly. Because often, I don't, my Demon Princes are not going any farther than my Plague Bears. Like, they're going to stay in that bubble, which means they're going to always have <clears throat> ample movement. To move around and oftentimes they'll advance because unless i'm planning to charge you know i might as well so they're going 12 plus d6 inches so uh, i generally find it's just not needed as much it's good to have in the back pocket but i i definitely don't cast warp time as much as a lot of players um 
but it can also be game winning if so to just have it. Yeah. So it seems like your list is like a giant toolbox. Basically you have all these characters and psychic powers and relics that can do all kinds of crazy stuff, wrapping people in combat, turning off other characters, sniping characters, just all kinds of stuff. What do you think, uh, I guess is your best unit or is it all just like your army comes together in one cohesive force? Or how do you think you'd attribute your, your importance of your units here? Mm, that, that's, a, that's a really hard question to say, like which unit is the best unit. I mean, each, each unit kind of plays an important role in the list. Um, I definitely feel like the strength of the list comes from the psychic phase. Like that's where the majority of the damage is coming from. So, you know, if I had to kind of put it on one aspect of the list, it'd be the, the psychers. With that said, I don't I don't feel like uh, like the list needs the different elements. Like you need the horrors because if you're playing against orcs or guard or even Gene Slayer Cult where there's a lot of models, the smites are just not enough to help take out those uh, those models. And so in a, in a matchup like that, you know the horrors might actually be the MVP. Uh, whereas in certain matchups like against the flyer matchup. Uh, my Demon Princes are the MVPs. And then in the night matchup, like I had a game at ATC where uh, my Corn Prince killed two knights fully and brought an, did 22 wounds to another. So he had done basically like 70 of 72 wounds on three knights by himself and for 180 points. So like you, you just can't get that level of damage output from another model in the army. And in that matchup, he was the most important. So it just really depends. And, and you know, you're absolutely right, Nick. It is a toolbox. There's no one part of the list that really wins the game, um, which on the bright side means that if you lose a part of the list, the list still functions. Like there's still other elements to list. It's not kind of a one trick pony in that sense where it's like once, you know, a certain unit dies or a certain few units die that the whole list kind of falls apart. It's got a lot of resiliency and redundancy in it. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And that's honestly what I think the most of the top list in the game right there, they had those built in redundancies where it's like, if you, not it's not set up where like if you lose your one big night you you might as well just go home you have fallbacks and all these contingency plans um do you often find though that since you know like you said against guard horrors may be your mvp because they can clear all the guys and in other games it may be the blood letters or whatever um do you find that you have certain units that just don't do anything in certain matchups um i'd say the blo- the blood letters are probably the unit that's the most kind of uh inconsistent and the reason I say that is because in certain matchups, um, they're going to just die if they go into stuff. Um, and, you know, if there's maybe a list with not a ton of shooting. So in the, in the Mirror matchup, for instance, the Blood Letters are actually the worst unit. Because if I'm playing against Plague Bears, they just bounce off and then they just die. Uh, blood Letters die to Plague Bears very quickly. Because, you know, they're getting wounding on threes with three rolls to wound. Yeah. You're going to kill like six or seven or eight yeah. Blood Letters and that unit disappears super fast. Um, I find the, the the thing about the horrors why they're good in every matchup is because I use them I use them like my plague bears so um, horrors are a shooting unit but really I play them a lot like board control they're they're a little bit charging they'll be moving they'll be wrapping so oftentimes I'll you got to make a decision of what's the best use of them in that game and as a as kind of like a a unit that can still take a lot of damage and move around the board and take a lot of board space the horrors actually do that very well. And so in some matchups where their shooting is maybe not as not as uh, effective, you can use them more in that role, and they're still going to be pretty good. Um, whereas the blood letters, it's like, if they don't really have a backfield target to go after, or um, you know, a, a high armor target to go after, they often just you know 
I'll charge them into something and they'll die. But the thing is, they're 130. It's 135 points to that unit, and uh, it's fairly, um, you know, that's a fairly low amount of points to kind of have to not talk, to not be using at full efficiency. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually tried your list once, and I used the blood letters, and I bought them the banner, and I spent uh, a CP to deep strike them. And then I ended up deep striking them back into my lines. I was playing against Gene Stealer Cult to essentially become a screen for a turn. Um, it really bothered me that I spent two CP to put a unit in my own deployment zone as a screen. Uh, do you find that they're worth the CP investment, even in the games where you're not using them to actually go be blood letters? Um, and do you, can you foresee that to the point where you will actually just not buy them their relics and deep strike? Right. I mean, I've never not bought them the banner. Um, that's definitely something that uh, is like for one CP is it's such a strong it's strong, such a strong ability. As far as deep strike versus not, again, it depends on the opponent. Like uh, you know, I, th- I think in, when we played at uh, Beef and Wing, Nick, you know, I, I deep strike them in my deployment zone too. So in a building, yeah. in my deployment zone. So yeah. there's definitely times where, and I think in retrospect, I should just started them on the board in a, in a building. Um, uh, but you know. Uh, there's it's you know almost everyone has shooting there's very few lists with zero shooting um and so you know generally having the ability to get them anywhere uh, is important and the the strength of the deep strike isn't necessarily uh even from the ability to like not have them get shot that is obviously a strength of deep strike but it's the ability to for your opponent to not know where they could go so it's like one of the things i hate about playing gene stealers is that every turn feels like you don't know what's going to happen and you have to guess where what your opponent's going to do. Whereas, you know, in most games against most opponents, the game in front of you is the game that is happening. So there's no, there's, you know, there might be one unit in deep strike and, and there's only finite amount of places that you think it could go. Gene Stealer is, is infuriating in that sense where it's like, you can have, uh, you can look at a, a board that the Gene Stealers are about to enter and you could, you could deploy that army in a hundred different ways and a hundred different variations and, 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 and there's no way to guess it. So you just have to kind of, you know, you sit there and you're like, just tense up and hope that it doesn't, you know, that you've, you've done the right things and you're yeah. just kind of waiting for it to hit you. You just set up camp and wait for them to show up and then you can start playing a game. Yeah. So. One of the things I've noticed with uh, high level players is there's a lot of games within the game that get played. Um, Gene Steeler Colt's a good example. Um, actually, just wrapping is another good example, right? Where there's this, this sort of mini game going on where the shooting army is trying to prevent you from getting a wrap on them. And you're trying like to find a place where you can get that wrap off because it just really is a crippling maneuver often in the game um, because you shut down a lot of shooting. Um, so I don't know. I just think it's, I think it's interesting, an interesting observation that high level play is a lot of times like all these mini games going on within the game. Yeah. I mean, I- I, I agree with you. I'd argue, and I'm sure Nick would agree, that like the the movement phase is the game, <laughs> and it is the most important phase of the game, right? So when you say mini games, like I I totally agree with you. But like for me, the the mini game is is the shooting phase and the fight phase and the yeah. uh, you know the other phase of the mini game really. Like the movement phase is where you have to basically you're going to set yourself up for success in those subsequent phases. And if you don't do those the right things, uh, and it also helps you counter put yourself in a position to counter to, you know, your opponent. So if, if you don't do those things right, uh, it doesn't matter how, how many guns you have or, you know, how, many, how, how good a unit you have in combat is. If it's in the wrong spot, it's, it's not going to do anything. 
I could not agree more. This is stuff I teach literally every week in my Knights Pro Group. Like, the, you never hear good 40K players, top 40K players just whining about dice. That's stuff that, like, the not successful 40K players do. Like, oh, man, I shot my knight at his thing, and he, he rolled 11 out of 9 saves, and nothing happened. If you change your outlook on the game from damage dealing as your primary means for winning, change it to positioning as your primary thing. Everything is now in your control. You're not going to have those feel-bad moments of, oh, he rolled nine dice and they were all sixes. It's going to be completely something you can just learn to do as opposed to, like, leaving it in Lux's hand. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really where the skill comes into the game, I find. And, and I think for me, that comes from, you know, I was a, a grizzled fantasy player. Like, I, I played fantasy competitively uh, before I kind of got into 40K, and the movement phase there is even more unforgiving. Like, you have to plan two, three turns ahead. Uh, and you have things like charge arcs and, yeah. you know, wheeling units. And so, you know, I kind of learned that. Res- and even in that game, you know, movement phase was king. And I kind of learned that appreciation for the strength of the movement phase. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people look at 40K, especially, uh, I mean, even I did coming from fantasy thinking, okay, the movement phase, you know, everything can move in every direction. Uh, it's 360. You don't have to worry about like line of sight in in sense where like because everything has 360 line of sight. You know how 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 much can this add to the game? It's very simple, but it was something that I learned very quickly was actually like just as complex and uh, you know you need to put just as much effort into kind of your thinking in that phase as other phases. Yeah. Another thing I think what people often don't realize and almost always overlook is that the assault phase is a second movement phase. Like yeah. entirely. Like, yeah, it's a mechanism for doing damage and killing models. But if you get past that, you move your models 2d6 inches when they charge, then you move three on a pile, and then you move three more on a consolidate. If you have a strategy to fight twice, you can get another six inches out of that, three and three from pile and consolidate. All of a sudden, your unit has just moved, let's say you roll a seven inch charge and then six and then six. Your just, unit just moved 19 inches. That's further than it can move in two turns of just moving normally. It's yeah, and, enormous what the fight makes can do. And that's kind of the point I was going to with like my my pink horrors, which is like I charge them almost every game, they charge. And a lot of people look at pink horrors and say, why would you charge pink horrors? Well, it's to move them. <laughs> it's not it's they're not charging to kill stuff. They're they're charging yeah. so they can move. And you know, being able to drop down from deep strike, shoot, and then charge and basically take up half the board, wrap one thing, tag another thing, uh, that you've doubled the uh, impact that one unit had on the game because now you've 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 kind of fully maximized its ability to affect the game rather than it just coming down and shooting and then you know getting charged and dying next turn i actually um i played against gene seer cult this past weekend i was trying out a tower on me for literally nonsensical reasons and uh i was playing against gene seer cult is my good buddy jack who i play like at every tournament somehow yeah, and that's it's yeah. funny. So it was towards the end of the game. It was like turn four or five. Wasn't it your army? No, he wasn't using my army. That would have been hilarious. Okay, um, I thought you guys had switched yeah, armies. No. Um, so he had a unit of aberrants in reserve, and they could come down and deep strike and charge a fire warrior squad and wrap it up. And usually that's a death blow for shooting armies. And like aberrants are wrapping your fire warriors. You can't shoot them. They're in your lines. It's just horrible. Um, and I, what I did was I basically put them out there as bait over on the other side of the table where I had all my riptides. Let's say it was like Dawn of War. So I was all on the left side with my riptides, my commanders, my drones, and like super far away on the right side, like maybe 45 inches from my lines was just a unit of fire warriors on an objective. And like he could come down and kill them or come down and wrap them, whichever he preferred. And 
Uh, he spent like a few minutes staring at this and then he realized it's not the right move, but the trap I had set for him was basically you can come in and wrap them. But if you do your aberrants are in the middle of nowhere and I'm just going to take my army and walk away from the aberrants even further, who the aberrants walk six inches charge. They don't do anything. So I'm, I'm starting like 20, 30 inches from them and moving another 12 away. All of a sudden I'm just, I don't have to kill these aberrants. It's really obnoxious unit to try to kill. I'm ignoring it. So you can, if you're not charging with the horrors, which I guess is what spawned this idea, um, then your opponent can just walk out of their 18-inch range, and now their hemisphere of influence is really small. So try to get them just more involved in the game in front of your characters, all that. is just really important. Absolutely. So um, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, ITC and how your list is designed, because it looks to me like it's, well, it's obviously a very strong list in ITC, but I thought maybe you could illuminate some of the reasons why, Jim. Yeah, I mean... Um... It does one thing well. It does two things well, uh, which is a board control. So it, you know, ITC is about uh, obje- holding objectives and killing things. But uh, so so it does the first one very well. It can hold uh, almost. You know, there's a very few armies that I will succeed su- board control to. Generally, only genes are called if I'm playing, um, and orcs maybe I will kind of give give up the board, so to speak, and that that term of um, I don't know if you ever heard that ter- that idea of giving up the board. So in certain matchups, you actually don't want to play, you know. And, and Nick was kind of mentioning earlier, um, or he talked about earlier, where you don't you're not always going to play on the full board. So there are certain scenarios, uh, say scenarios where there's even objectives, uh, and then. Uh, those are the specifically ones where you can kind of be a bit more conservative because you don't have to play for that odd objective. Um, and then there's some matchups where if you play too aggressive, if you play too spread out, you're going to lose. And, you know, Gene Sarah cults is a, is a perfect example of that where you don't know where they're going to come in. So you want to be as compact as possible so that no matter where they come in, you're able to counter and, and kind of get back at them. Um, so it does that very well. It holds the board very well when I need to. And then second, it doesn't necessarily kill very well, but it doesn't let people kill it very well. So uh, there's been there's been games where I've gone where opponents haven't gotten a kill till turn three, sometimes turn four, um, and that is in ITC. That's basically insurmountable. Uh, that's almost an insurmountable um, deficit. So if you don't get a kill for the first say three turns, that's essentially like a twelve point swing because your opponent's going to get two points for each 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 turn and you're not going to get two points each turn. So essentially becomes the, the gap is essentially like almost like 12 points. It's not quite 12 points, but it's, uh, it, it is, it is a pretty big swing. And with ITC, like, especially with this, this way the secondaries are, are now almost everyone can get between eight and 10 secondaries pretty easily. Um, like, you know, you're not always going to get that full 12, but you can pretty reliably, unless you're chosen completely wrong, get eight to 10 secondaries almost every game in almost every match. And, you know, my, my army does give up Reaper, uh, but it's not so many models that, like, um, it's easy. So, like, you still have to almost table me. Uh, I think it's just over 90 models right now, which means, like, you almost have to table me to get that Reaper. So it's not, like, necessarily automatic, but it's definitely, you know, you got to put your work in. And at that point, you're probably winning anyways. Um, uh, for, for other secondaries to give up Headhunter, again... Uh, it's a bit of a trap because unless you have snipers, um, which are a problem for the list, um, you're generally not going to get the characters. And the thing to understand too is like a lot of people play their demon princes like uh, like bludgeons. 
but a demon prince is more like a like a uh a scalpel like it's it, they're they're very fragile and they're very uh they don't actually kill more than seven models per turn so they're not these you know people have a lot more fear i think mentally of demon princes than they actually do on the table um the damage they actually do on the table their damage output uh, their average against like guard their average on average going to kill like six models which is not it's not it's not like something to go crazy about right and then they actually die with any sort of real combat unit if they're kind of countered they actually die pretty quick so the the goal of the list is basically to deny kill points to your enemy hold objectives and then just slowly grind away and and kind of take out your enemy over time um and that's why it's really important and it's something that i would recommend if you're going to play this type of list you really want to be playing on a chess clock as much as possible this is not a list that scores well early game um it's definitely takes a few turns to kind of get going um and uh the other thing that is really good about it is actually very good at going second so this is a list that i've i've gone second in so many matchups and it's just not even been an issue. And going sec, if you can go second in ITC, it's very, very strong because you you're able to kind of at, during your player turn calculate exactly what you need to do in each turn to win that turn. Whereas if you go first, yes, you get the advantage of going first, but you're kind of you kind of have to play riskier because you know you might have to go for a second kill to get the kill more that you normally wouldn't have. Um, whereas the opponent can then calculate, okay, well, if I want that second kill, what's it going to cost me? And, and is it, does, it, does, it, does it count this turn? Like, is it, is it worth that risk to try to go for that second kill? And so it allows you to play a much more conservative game um, and uh, kind of grind your opponent out. And so that's kind of where the strength is in the ITC as far as I'm concerned. So like going second, you just get to operate your turn with more information than your opponent has, right? They've got to guess Absolutely. what you're going to be able to accomplish where you know exactly what they accomplished. You know exactly what, what where they're standing, so you know what objectives they're standing on. You know exactly how much they killed. Um, and so you can you know, have the benefit of all the information. Right. And especially... No, go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, especially uh, turns five and six when it gets late game, um, when there's not much left on each table, being able to go kind of bottom, uh, especially going into bottom of turn six where it's like the game is on the line being able to kind of just figure out what you need to do to win or or if you need to push or not like if you're say in a tie game or up one point going into turn six you might play very risky to try to build a two three four point lead into their turn six but when you're going uh second or if you have the bottom of the turn six you know exactly how many points you need and so you don't have to play it as risky and i think that's really important so it's interesting that you value going second so highly. I do as well. Um, I think going second for all the reasons you just listed is a super strong advantage. But a lot of players I know when they're talking about your list think you have to go first to get my asthma off and then play bears, get your buffs off, bring your reserves in faster, get up the table so you get on the objectives first. That's how you're going to end up getting hold more recons in theory. So especially against strong armies like with huge alpha strikes like Tau or even Necrons with Tesla – Anything that can really damage you significantly before you get my asthma up is that do you still choose second if given the opportunity in that choice, or do you value getting your defenses off more valuably than the mission? Yeah, and you know, that's a that's a great question, Nick. And it's something that actually I get asked a lot, which is, you know, how do I beat X Army or how do and I'm sure you get this too, how do I beat Y Army or what do I do in this in this match? And you know, I always say like it comes down to the terrain. 
uh, and it comes down to uh, the list. So that question of whether or not I want to go first or second, there isn't one answer, right? In certain matchups, if there's, say, heavier terrain that I think I can mitigate that alpha strike, I will maybe take second. In lists where it's a it's planet bowling ball, and I know if I don't go if I don't get that miasma up, if I don't get those deep strikers and take the table, it's gonna hurt. Yeah, I'll definitely try to go first. But I think the point I was making was that whether or not you go first and second isn't game game defining. And and there are a lot of lists that if they don't go first, uh, they like there's certain matchups where it's like if I go, you know, there's lots of games where you're like whoever goes first wins, right? There, you hear that a lot. Like, well, whoever wins the turn for yeah, going first wins. Absolutely. Like Flyers versus Tau, for example. Right. And so in, in my matchup, yes, a lot of cases I do prefer to go first, but there's never, it's never the to the point where I'm like, whoever goes first wins. If I go second, okay, I can survive and I can still win the game. And, and that's important as well. It's like, because you're not always going to get that choice, right? Um, to go first or second. And the ability to kind of weather a tough shooting phase or a tough, um, you know, alpha strike is one of the strengths of the list. So does your game plan change after you see who's going first or second? Like, do you have a plan? If I'm going first, I'm going to run up the table, buff up, and just kind of throw my army at his, try to wrap him up, do what I do. Uh, but if I go second in the same mission, maybe I'll, I'll just try to hide behind terrain, get shot for six turns straight, but, you know, keep playing for hold more, kill more, and, and win the long game, even if I lose most of my army. Is that a choice you make at the table after you see that roll? Well, I think kind of what I said earlier, which is the, the, my army doesn't really get going till mid to late turns because it takes a while for those smites to start really... Uh, like, you're, you know, it's very rare you kill a whole unit Unless it's like a say unit of scouts or a unit of you know five Eldar whatever's out in the middle of nowhere, turn one. So generally, things you're smiting are going to be larger units, flyers, and again, those generally take one or two turns of kind of damage to kill. And so to kind of answer your question, what I'd say is I play always as if I'm going to go second uh, because I don't know if I'm going to go first or second. So I want to be in the best position possible regardless of whether I go first or second. And that means planning to go second because that's, so that's, you know, if, if I think going second is my least uh, beneficial like outcome, then I want to plan to be in the best position, uh, uh, like uh, deployed, like deployed in the best position in case that does, that outcome happens. So that even if I go second, I'm still in the best position possible. And that, that even includes games, I kid you not, where uh, in the new deployment style, where I might I get to automatically go first and deploy first. There's been times where I'll still deploy as if I'm going second because the amount of times I've been seized on, and then that that risk or that play to try to be super aggressive has blown up in my face has been many, and then I you know spend the five turns cleaning it up. So even in those games where I think I'm most likely going to go first, whether I have the plus one or not, doesn't matter. Um, I always plan to go second. Um, and that way, I'm always in the best defensive position. And, and as I said, the, the list is not going to go out there and start mowing things down turn one and two. So being in a defensive position is more advantageous to me than trying to be like super uh, aggressive or you know in the middle of the table. I couldn't agree more. I actually want you hit on something I want to get at here. Um, for those of you listening, if you're not familiar with Jim's record, uh, Jim has at least top aided or top four or top two even almost every turn he's been in the past six months at least and he goes to a tournament like every two weeks the guy's a maniac but um you don't get that kind of consistency by taking risks even if the risks is small like playing to not get seized on you know like i have an 84 percent chance here 
right. or I chose first and it's a point first go, whatever that may be. You get that level of consistency by minimizing risk down to the, the maximum percentage you can minimize it. So like Jim said, he'll play to not get seized. He'll play as if he's going to get seized on every time. Because if you think about it, in an eight-round tournament like Adepticon, in a 10-round tournament like LVO, you play six games of 40K or eight rounds, 10 rounds, whatever, and you go first five of them, you're going to get seized on once. Like, that's going to happen. So if you play it deployed online ready to win, there's no prize for being the guy who went five and one. There's no prize for being the guy who got seized on but would have won anyways. There's no prize for recognizing these potential pitfalls and doing something about it and then winning your game despite the seize. And that's the kind of play that the top players, those choices that they make, to really get that level of consistency where you see the same names over and over and over on top. Absolutely. Wow, that's that's actually amazing. Did you guys want to talk about maybe some other um, list choices that you're considering in changing your list, Jim? Or Yeah, um, so I am going to an event this weekend um, called T-Shift in Seattle. Uh, whenever you hear this, so this, this event will probably be long over. <laughs> Hopefully I do well. Um, and I'm, I have three freshly painted... Uh, uh, Lord Discordance that I'm going to be uh, kind of slotting into the list, and basically, um, I, I'm I've been back and forth on like four lists. I'm literally the list deadline is not till like the Friday before the event, which is like two days from now. So I've been back and forth on a bunch of lists. I haven't play tested them at all. So like I've never even played with these models, these Lord Discordance. They literally finished painting them uh, two days ago. So um, I'm going to kind of go go with them. Um, I'm I'm not sold on them. Like I know that in the south and the southeast and ATC especially, there was a lot of Lord Discordance. Like every Chaos player in the south seems to be playing Mortarian and three Lord Discordance. The kind of Austin Wingfield, Jeff Jeff Robinson style list. Um, and uh, I'm not sold on them, but um, I have some bigger events like Nova and Capital City coming up in about uh, well later later this month, and I want to kind of give the list a spin and see how I like it. Um, I think by then everyone's going to be have tools to beat them. So, but uh, the the meta here is a little bit softer, and the, the 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 player caliber is a little bit easier than when it is when I'm playing out east. So I'm hoping I can kind of you know ride that a little bit to victory here. Yeah. I, I personally don't think Lord Discordance are actually that good. I'm going to get crucified on the internet for saying that, but uh, that's that's where I stand on them. So hopefully you do well with them this weekend, or I guess two weeks yeah. ago. No, that's I. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you in the sense that like I think I think they're really good for their points. Um, I just think that in the meta as it is currently, um, unless you're playing a threat overlord list with a ton of other targets, uh, just three of them feels a little bit like, okay, here's the three things I'm going to shoot, and then I'm not going to shoot your plague bearers, or I'm not going to shoot your other stuff. So then you just basically gave me three kills. Yeah. Um, they're very easy to screen out, so they have big bases, and uh, you know, 10 guardsmen will stop. They'll kill 10 guardsmen, but then they just get blown off by battle cannon or, um, you know, a, a good opponent will screen them. And I've played, I've played discordance with my list, like against them. And I've never, you know, they're very nasty, but if you can kind of absorb their, their charge um, and counter them, they actually, you know, go down pretty quick. So, um, yeah. You know they're my my newest my newest painted models, so I'm gonna go enjoy them and hopefully I don't uh, embarrass myself. But uh, that's the newest stuff. Um, I've also so been what, sorry. Go ahead. What comes? I was just gonna ask what comes out of the list to, to squeeze those in. So basically, what I did was I switched. I pulled out my 
sorcerer, my extra sorcerer, I pulled out my corn prince because the corn prince and discordance actually fulfill the same role. Um, like a, a buffed up uh, flawless host discordant with like diabolic strength and prescience will basically kill a knight himself as well. Um, especially because they can give him a, a one CP stratagem to reroll all hits and wounds. Uh, and they're exploding on fours basically. So it's like super disgusting the amount of attacks they get. Um, so I pulled out the corn prince. I pulled out the blood letters. I pulled out the horrors. And I pulled out uh, the Lone Sorcerer. So essentially, it's three Lord Discordants, the same Demon Battalion, so Plague Bearers, the Epitome, and a Poxbringer. Uh, no Bile Piper, because I didn't have the points. And then uh, a Thousand Sons Battalion with uh, two Demon Princes and Armin, and then two Units of Cultists, and 25 Zangors. And the only reason I'm going to try Zangors at this event, and you can thank uh, Richard Cozart, for uh, being the cheese ball that he is, but uh, apparently it's very kosher to be running the instrument of chaos and the Brayhorn. Apparently, that's uh, <laughs> people are doing it. I refuse without to any, believe that's real. <laughs> without any reper- well, they allowed it at Slaughterfest, and apparently, I mean, I de- the the FL the FLG guy said it is legit for the time being. I don't know, so I'm going to abuse that rule until it gets nerfed. So I'm running uh, plus two to charge Zangors. Uh, thankfully, this podcast is coming out after the event so no one will be able to stop me before it's too late um so yeah so and just just so everyone knows what i'm talking about uh and kind of what the um the rule is so basically the gw flowchart for index war gear says that if a piece of war gear does not exist in the codex data sheet you can use it uh from the index data sheet and so the instrument of chaos which gives uh zangor's plus one to charge was renamed into a Brayhorn. So that's it's the exact same piece of war gear, essentially, functionally. But because it has a new name, uh, it's technically not the same piece of war gear. And so I'm allowed to basically take uh, an index version of the instrument and then the codex version of the instrument. So I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it's super cheese, but um, you know, I'm going to abuse it. And uh, I'll, I'll go on an apology tour later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, nice. Every famous person needs an apology to her at some point. <laughs> yeah. All right, Nick. I think we've covered the strategy of the list pretty well. Um, yeah, Jim. Is there anything on the on the more macro strategy level side of it you want to talk about? Yeah, I think um, it, it's not an easy list to play. Uh, I've had a ton of people message me that they've started running the list or some, something similar to TJ's list, which is also I actually think TJ's list is stronger um in some ways and it's weaker in other ways but the way the meta is going i actually think his list is is better than mine um and uh i'm sure you, if you if you have bcp I'd, I'd check out his list um but i think the biggest thing is it, it, it's it's very movement intensive you really have to know how to move um it's very unforgiving in your positioning and it's not it's not like it's not a list where you can put on the table and it's obvious what everything does and what everything should do. So, you know, if you're, if you're planning to run a list like this, uh, my one piece of advice is you just got to play a lot of practice games and really start to understand, you know, what each component does and, and what it can't do. Um, and, you know, then go from there. Uh, if you play it wrong, it can, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a house of cards where it's like, if certain components start to die, the list starts to collapse and you got to be really careful there uh, that you don't play too aggressive. Um, kind of going back to my Demon Prince comments where it's like a lot of people like to play it very aggressive because like, oh, Demon Prince is awesome. And then two, two of their Demon Princes die and the list is just some Plague Bears running around not killing anything. Um, 
so you know that's my one thing is like it, it, you know me and tj have had success with it there's been some other players that have had success with similar lists but uh it's not you know we've both been playing this list or similar list for like the last 10 months so it's been like a lot of reps and i think that's the biggest piece of advice i give people when you hear to hear folks you got to just play the game to get good at the game shocking um <laughs> So if you guys enjoyed this podcast, we're going to have Jim come on for us part two of this episode over on our Art of War Patreon. Um, that's going to be where Jim goes into why he thinks TJ's list is better. I was, I'm curious to hear about this. Uh, which kind of psychic powers he takes for different matchups, which matchups he thinks are hard, what he struggles with, how he deploys differently in different games, and get into the nitty gritty of his list. So if that's something you want to listen to, check it out on Art of War Podcasts on Patreon. Uh, sign up and you'll get access to part two uh just become a patreon patron it's only five bucks a month is it five bucks a month is it six bucks? it's only 5.95 a month so you know less than uh a night of chinese food um also if you guys want to hear more about my thoughts on 40k and learn to play 40k more competitively with your own coach you can come over tonight's the game table pro check that out and where i teach five different classes a week uh, do a wiki battle report where I go through the ins and outs of different armies and teach a weekly class on the meta, analyzing different point results and new releases. Thank you for joining us for the strategy discussion on the Art of War podcast. This is John. This is Nick. This is Jim. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.